Brian Heavy 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 Board. Snyder is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet that I was not very familiar with. Aside from the Norton anthologies I used in college classrooms during my studies, and I admit I was never very fond of his work. Our aesthetics never seemed to line up. But despite that, and as part of me challenging myself to engage with books I wouldn't normally, his book, Turtle Island, made it onto the reading list for this podcast. And I purchased a copy a while ago and decided it was time to dig into it here. I admit, I knew little of Snyder's life, his bleeding heart environmentalism, or his obsession with Native American mythology and ways of living with the earth. I only knew him by reputation. And as I said, the Norton Anthology readings I had to do in various courses in college. And what I want to focus on in today's monologue is something broader that I think is really dragging down creativity in general. And perhaps this is a good time to bring it up, discuss it. And that idea is ideology over aesthetic, over structure even in certain cases, over meaning making, over creation itself. Ideology being worshipped as a form of higher enlightenment and not the limitation that it always is. The current idea is that the firmer one stands in any given ideology, the more meaningful the art. But that simply isn't true. And the fact that it's being used as a metric for judgment is just absurd. But it's here. We're living in it. And I do want to be clear that this is a normal and natural tension in a lot of art and art making, a balancing act. An artist struggling with their own ideologies and then also struggling with their works of art that may or may not be a product of said ideologies. But there is a line. There is a line. There is a line that when crossed, ideology begins to lessen works of art mainly because it is slathered all over the project, handprints, smears and all, and not in a good way. Though, I admit, some good art has been made with loud ideology all over it. But most of the time, it's a balancing act. If your art leans too much one way or the other, it easily becomes corny, hysterical, delusional even, something that will make people roll their eyes. But more importantly, it weakens the artwork. Some critics refer to it as being hit over the head with a hammer, something like that. Meaning, too much of a good thing spoils the appetite. And I think that's a fitting way to put this balancing act. Harold Bloom, 
called Books That Overdid Any Given Type of Ideology, Politically or Otherwise, quote, top-heavy books. And I think that fits, too. And describes what I'm getting at. The balancing. When something is very top-heavy, as Bloom put it, it requires something else to ensure it keeps its balance. Maybe a very narrow frame in order to ensure that that top-heavy book doesn't topple over, that it stays on a straight and narrow line instead of zigzagging all over the place. Unfortunately, Snyder's Turtle Island zigzags, and its top is so heavy it topples right over. The ideology just suffocates almost all the literary merit and aesthetic pleasure right out of this book. It becomes a sermon from a mount, something more annoying and self-referential than revelatory. And because it is more preoccupied with this ideology than the actual poetry, the book fails. It becomes a little collage project instead of a harrowing collection of poems that makes us think about our place in the world, our responsibilities as stewards. But this is partly because the book is preoccupied with Snyder's place in the world. It is a self-centered book, if I've ever read one. All that being said, I'm sure it's not a surprise that this book was a struggle for me to get through. I had to put it down and spread the reading over two days as I was so disappointed in the material. Its vagueness, brought on by its preoccupation with this environmental ideology and little else. I might even venture to call it laziness in certain ways which I will get into later in the podcast, listeners. In short, Snyder seems to be simultaneously patting himself on the back for writing these poems, while also relying on the ideology in the pages to justify the self-congratulatory tones and themes of the book. It's mainly portraits of Snyder's life, frankly, and the main message is you should look on this unique way of living that allows for a special oneness with the world in all. But I feel I need to clarify something here. While you will hear me criticize the overemphasis and smothering of Snyder's ideology into all of these poems, I want to be clear that I'm not an anti-environmentalist. In fact, I believe in the goodness of nature and even its, quote, purity to some extent. I want clean energy clean cars, etc. But I do have a hard time believing what Snyder is writing in this book. And his environmental manifesto at the end, which imagines a purity I believe to be laughably naive and unachievable in the world. Just throwing it out there, listeners, extremists write manifestos. But what I found most annoying was that Snyder seems to expect the reader through these sentiments, to gain all or most of the meaning from his poems. By sharing in his ideology, that if one isn't aware of his sentimental earth-first ideology, his poems become quite meaningless, or simply just little glimpses of a nature scene, with little else included. And this is the major flaw in this prize-winning book. The larger sentiment existing outside the world of the poems on the page. In fact, 
I'd go as far as to argue the larger sentiment only exists in Snyder's own head. Now, this isn't true for every poem in the collection, as I'll go into a few that I think work well, including some of his most famous works. But it is true of most of the poems in the collection. And it should be said, listeners, that the best poems in this book tend to be the most concentrated. The expansions of smaller ideas within the larger themes, such as the bath, where Snyder wants us to see how pure and innocent his special way of family bathing is, how traditional and open it is. The poem really says little else, though I know many would argue with me on that front. As I read the first half of this collection, I, like I said, found myself struck with how vague a lot of these poems seemed, how some of the structure puzzled me in ways I didn't expect it to for such a celebrated collection, such as the inconsistent use of capitalization within the same poem. As I said before, something I can only perceive as a laziness, a lack of attention to detail, overly concerned with the hodgepodge of ancient symbols and drawings throughout the book instead of the poems. And I wasn't rolling my eyes the entire time, but I was a lot of the time, listeners. Some of it was so overly serious, I couldn't help myself. I kept picturing Steven Seagal wrapping himself in beads and feathers and doctrines of an ancient culture, declaring himself of higher enlightenment for these decorations, all self-proclaimed and self-appointed, surprise, surprise, I couldn't shake the image. So I tried to keep in mind that this was a cool new movement in the 1970s. No one had really given a shit about horrible environmental impacts up until then. And of course, it was an important movement in a lot of ways. As I said, I'm not unsympathetic to Snyder's environmentalist ideology. But it's clear from reading this collection that the ideology is why most of these poems and Snyder's larger body of work is considered canon-worthy. Not because of the work itself, but the ideology around the work. But I have to say, listeners, reading it now, in this particular reading, I have to say, I'm not sure I agree with the canonization of Snyder's work. But of course, not that what I think matters much, but that's my hottest take, that Snyder is mostly praised for his cult-like adherence to this imagined pure world he writes about, not for the actual poems and artwork on the page. But come on, I know better than to just write something off. I tried to engage fairly, just be honest. Let the work flow over me as I read. I also try to tell myself that I should be more broad-minded, but it did seem that each poem competed to bore me more than the last with each page I turned. So simple, so uninteresting, almost written in Crayola crayon. So I tried to contextualize Snyder's work with the larger tradition of literary poets, because I don't just want to complain and criticize. I want to praise where praise is due. The Romantics being the first that came to mind, that this collection of poems is perhaps Snyder's way of engaging with that long literary tradition. And my attitude improved, at least. But 
I will also say that the first thing I noticed about the works after this revelation was how much they differ from the romantics of the 19th century. How the romantics emphasized a universalism and love of nature in their work, a love of truth and beauty that transcends the time they were written in. Whereas in Snyder's work, the best I can tell from my reading, the emphasis is on showing how ugly the world has gotten in the 1970s. How pure nature could be if humans didn't ever exist. Which I consider to be an extremist-leaning philosophy. As I said, there's a manifesto. And sure, there are themes that overlap with great romantic poets. The idea of being distraught at industrialization, a very romantic sensibility, one I sympathize with. The idea that nature is being fractured by human beings, very romantic, biblical even. I agree with it. It's a good theme to build a poem around. And I have to believe that Snyder saw his work as a continuation of this tradition in some way. No doubt, admiring the romantic greats. And I will add here that Snyder tends to be lumped in with the rest of the mostly mediocre writers we call the beat writers, which I've already ranted about on this podcast before. But getting to the poetry, even the name of the book, Turtle Island, felt so corny, I had a hard time getting past the introductory note, where it seems Snyder considers his lamentations basically the ancient wisdom of ancient cultures. And normally, this is something I can get behind. But this is also where the ideology begins to crowd out the poetry and the aesthetic of the work. The first page. This note on the very first page is to make sure we know as readers, where the meaning in the poems comes from, because it won't be in the coming pages, listeners. My brain just has a hard time believing anyone telling me any point in history was a better or a more pure time. Sorry, that's always going to be an eye roll for me. I find that notion, frankly, a little naive, unconsidered, unreflected upon, maybe blinded by the ideology. And it was after the first section of the book, I started to realize that maybe Gary Snyder and his poetry were not for me. The boredom I felt, with the same philosophical musings being repeated over and over again, was grating on me after 20 pages. But I want to be fair. So of course, listeners, I did consider that the problem might be me. That I was being too cynical about something like the Earth First movement in the 1970s. But I didn't even find the poems sad or depressing as they lamented the destruction of the Earth. I just found them boring. Over-romanticized, stoned musings. Images of birds flying over the sky can only hold my attention for so long. Mediocre descriptions that do more to brag about his hunter-gatherer lifestyle in the mountains than convey any wisdom or truth or beauty that hasn't already been written better a thousand times over. This is why the image of Steven Seagal kept creeping into my mind. A blowhard playing dress-up, and he wants us to know. See how serious he takes the dressing up. The costumes of environmentalism. 
I will get to the manifesto eventually, listeners, and it is a doozy. And I noticed this with a poem like Burn in this collection, that the poem and others in the book almost struck me as an internet culture return to tradition meme, and I say that in air quotes, where he describes how the Native Americans used to do controlled burns of their own to prevent wildfires in their lands on the western coast of North America. Of course, tapping into some ancient wisdom that would indeed benefit our contemporary world. Respect for the land, stewards, great topics for poetry. And Snyder, no doubt, gets accusations of appropriation for referencing that in his work now. Draping himself in beads and feathers and greasy ponytails. But that's always an unfair criticism. I don't think Snyder's bad because it's stealing something or using something he didn't earn as a point of imagery and reference in a work of art. And that's because nothing is off limits in art, listeners. I think it's bad because it's hard for me to believe it to be true. That somehow Snyder is playing a part. And maybe I'm being too cynical here, but I just kept getting this look at me feeling buried in the prose. A little hodgepodge of Buddhism, other Eastern philosophies, some Native Americans sprinkled in. I couldn't shake the sense that these poems wanted praise for borrowed wisdom. In a pretty mediocre package, if I'm being honest. And I do strive to be, listeners. In fact, I can't believe it. No matter how hard I try to believe it, that the entire earth was covered in peace and harmony before humans made their mark, or that ancient cultures and civilizations were filled with peace and harmony before modern times. But most importantly, I think it's impossible to go back or, quote, return, as the internet meme goes, especially to an imagined time that Snyder never lived through himself. I actually have a hard time thinking that anyone actually believes this sort of thinking. That it requires a set of blinders and an almost religious zealotry that I can't muster up. And Snyder's blind adherence to such an extreme ideology hurts this book. But as far as poetry goes, Snyder has a confessional aspect to his work in this collection. And there are moments where it works quite well to add a tenderness that is smuggled into this book in places. But I also think there is a sort of what I would call a laziness to it, a laziness to some of it too. The boring descriptions of his wife and child just working the land like they live in a wigwam and make their own baskets is just braggadocious pandering. The Steven Seagal image. The poem's asking us to view his way of life as some enlightenment to all others instead of conveying any meaning or truth to what is written on the page. So the poems become vanity poems. This is where the ideology comes in, smothering the art, a reliance on the sort of environmentalist ideology to do most of the work in the poetry, at least in this collection. As I said already, listeners, in Snyder's defense, I haven't read much of his other work. I am specifically talking about this collection of poems, Turtle Island. And honestly, listeners, I don't think I will seek out his other work. But it seems Snyder tends to rely on this ideology to give all his poems some meaning, 
And there are places where it works in tandem with the poem, sure. As I said, usually in the more narrowly focused ones, such as the bath. And there are places where it doesn't work so well. Smothers the poem in it. Suffocates the vision. It becomes a sermon. Or just a piece of a poem. A single image grasping desperately to the larger themes of the ideology. I couldn't shake this feeling that these poems were laments for a world that Snyder never actually knew, but imagines in his head, romanticizing stories he had heard, stories he had been told. And not that that can't make for interesting and original poetry on its own, but it doesn't seem to hear. It gets smothered in the ideology. It's a weakness here. And it's one I find myself unable to ignore. And it's disappointing. I never want to read a book and dislike it, let alone have to write a monologue about why I'm not finding it appealing. And maybe I'm being too harsh, not letting the romanticizing sweep me off my feet and take me down the road of imagination. But then again... It seems like this book wants the reader to be submerged in environmentalist politics, not imagination. Complete with a manifesto about those very politics at the end. In fact, most of the poems have little meaning without the framework of a mid-20th century environmentalist politics on top of it, making it, quote, top-heavy, as Bloom would say. Which, as I already pointed out, is a weakness. That Snyder desperately wants readers to see the political bent in these poems, praise him for it even. It makes the framing unstable, hitting us over the head with it, toppling over. It clouds the work, overshadows it. And I know that Snyder wants us to see something in this work, that he's pointing out some hidden truth to us all and we should be grateful for it. That clearly he thought this overall theme was enough to give each little fragment in the book meaning. But as a reader, reading it many years after its initial publication, I feel almost nothing reading a lot of it, which is a problem. And no, listeners, it's not just because I am some evil freak who laughs with glee at oil spills or deforestation. It's because this collection is relying on this huge outside thing, this ideology, like environmentalism, something so broad and expansive that it's hard to narrow down into even a single collection of poems, let alone a single poem. So it ends up just being plain old vanilla and too vague. It's too big and too broad. A child's understanding of the world and the craft his manifesto often blames large generalizing terms such as, quote, politicians or, quote, the media, the big one, right? Something he doesn't bother to narrow down in any of the writings. I find this in a lot of contemporary poems as well. And a little advice, listeners, if you want to capture something so large like environmentalism, well, it better be a long poem or a fucking masterpiece. Because these two broad images captured in Snyder's poetry are just not used to the poem's advantage, but instead are acting as placeholders for what the main theme is, i.e. man is evil and should be punished for his wrong deeds. 
like Noah and his ark, in a way. As Snyder suggests in his opening note, creation mythology from various cultures inspired this book heavily, and there are parts where it does shine through. But my biggest problem with the ideology being so heavy-handed in every poem is that it cheapens what Snyder is actually trying to say, that the actual message of environmental concern is clouded out of the collection, that when a poet becomes too overzealous about any given ideology, it always ends up hurting the art. This includes various artistic movements as well. It isn't just environmentalist politics, listeners. This can be true of all artists and all ideologies, but it runs the risk of making it more propaganda than art. I find the same boredom creeping into me when it comes to, say, overly religious literature, for example. And I'll get into that mostly arbitrary line configurations in these poems later on in the episode, listeners. The book itself is a desperate cry to return to some tradition that, frankly, never existed something only alive in dreams. And that isn't entirely removed from poetry either. But when that's all there is, it makes for weak poetry. And while I understand that fans of Snyder will not like this or think I am trying to belittle his work, I ask you to consider what is so good about this collection of poetry. Is it the craft, the lineation, the images he conjures up, his special blend of romanticized ancient religions, or is it his environmental politics? And of course, let it be known that my feelings could change, or I could be persuaded, but I also encourage those who think I'm wrong to go back and read this book. Tell me if you think there are more than a few strong poems in this entire collection or that the book is weakly leaning for all its strength on the bleeding environmentalist sensibilities. Top heavy. But I'm losing the plot. What really bothers me about the book is that I find it mostly mediocre. Self-aggrandizing of Snyder and his chosen lifestyle in a really weird, noble liberal way. Overpraised for something that isn't very well done in the actual book, but for a sentiment around the book a cause. This way of thinking, with ideology over aesthetic, has poisoned the very study of literature and art, constantly narrowing, constantly whitewashing, and yes, listeners, canceling, removing works of art from the canon. In all these cases, ideology is used as the only metric. How well does a given piece of art adhere to a certain ideology is the main judgment marker for most of these issues. But that's always wrong, always too narrow, always cloudy. I just believe we can do better in our understanding of the world around us than some unhinged manifestos calling for voluntary sterilization to save the planet. I just believe we can make better art created by the world's inspiration. What Snyder is actually trying to do here, but not achieving. And I salute every poet for trying. It just doesn't succeed in this book. (laughs) 
Heavy Board. All right, this is Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt, and welcome back. And today we're getting into Gary Snyder's Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Turtle Island. And this book was originally published in 1974, I believe. Maybe its original iteration was 69. It looks like on the title page, and then there's various iterations. But the one I have looks like it was a 74. Uh, and this is the one I'll link in the description, the ones you get on um, Amazon. Uh, and this is a New Directions paperback for the publisher, for those that are book nerds on the podcast. Got to make sure you guys are satisfied, right, with what we have here. And we're going to get into this. We're going to get into this kind of... I'm actually glad I have an opportunity to talk about this because I do... I do... It, it touches on... It gives me an opportunity to talk about a few things I've been thinking about recently and in showing listeners and other readers out there how to judge things like this. Uh, so we'll get onto it. As you'll hear in the monologue again, let me know. Anybody who wants to respond or, or give me something that I didn't think about, think I'm missing something, please send us an email. Send me an email at uh, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. I'll be interested to uh, hear somebody. And I, I'm thinking about starting a segment since I'm running solo with this podcast now that mm, if you have something to add or you think I missed something or you just want to say, hey, I love the monologue, you know, send me an email, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And I want to get into a segment where... I start to read some of those out. And, you know, I'm not going to use names. I don't want to use names unless you want me to, you know, get a little shout out. That's fine. But I was planning on just doing it totally anonymous. Just, be, oh, a listener sent in, you know, and uh, read that out to people. And, and then maybe talk about it a little bit. Maybe make that as like a maybe a, a bonus segment at the end of each episode. Kind of a, hey, or maybe at the beginning of each episode, we go over and, and we say, hey, you know, a few listeners had some thoughts. Let's Let's talk about it and listen. Let's have a little conversation, a long-running conversation. Uh, this is a good time to do a little housekeeping. So, this is a podcast. It's called Heavy Board. Uh, we have a subscription plan. If you go to patreon.com slash heavyboard, you can receive full access to uncensored episodes for subscribers only, bonus episodes, all that good stuff, for a very reasonable price per month. Uh, if you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That's a free way to support us. It helps us out, helps us grow. You can also check out and subscribe to our YouTube channels for more. We put all three episodes up on our YouTube channel at Heavy Board. If you like to consume your content there, and then if you don't have time to listen to the full episode, we also put up clips at Heavy Board Clips on YouTube. Uh, give those a like, give those a subscribe, share it with your friends and family. That's a free way to support us. It helps us grow. And as always, uh, we are still, I am still looking for workshop horror stories. I actually got one email from a listener that I'm, I'm going to go into next episode, and um, we're going to start that segment off very uh it should be a lot of fun so if you have a workshop story maybe even just send me your thoughts of workshop i'm thinking about expanding it a little bit more to just beyond workshop horror stories to just what do you think about workshops what's your experience in them etc uh we're going to get into that next episode so if you have a workshop horror story you have some thoughts about how writing workshops work out you're in one right now you have memories from one 20 years ago send me an email at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com and i'll hopefully talk about those on the podcast again all anonymous i don't want to use names programs teachers names you know the person that pissed you off in workshop we're not mentioning them by name okay i want it all anonymous uh to protect the listeners and you know you just, why, why start shit like that you know it's just unprofessional to uh name names you know out of, telling stories out of class, as they said, right? But that's housekeeping.
that's housekeeping. Sorry, I had to get a little coffee here. A little coffee, let me get a little toot on the vape before we start diving into this book and actually the contents of the book, which I know is what most of you came here for. Fuck, smudged my glasses. Oh, one of my pet peeves, listeners, some of you know, if you're a glasses wearer, and I prefer glasses to contacts, quite frankly, although I do wear both, especially if, you know, I'm going somewhere and I need sunglasses and there's beach and, you know, suntan lotion, all that kind of shit everywhere, you know, I, uh, we'll put in contacts, but, uh, I can't stand smudges when my glasses are smudged. I'm like, I keep a little glass cleaner in my briefcase and my car and everywhere, every room in the house. And I'm just like, I gotta clean this, clean this fucking smudge. No smudges on my vision. So I'm obsessed with that. But all right, Turtle Island. Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, It's actually, this is quite a long book for a poetry collection. Quite a long book, quite a long book. We have um, almost... 20, 18 poems or more in each of these sections. It's divided into about four sections with the final one being what they call plain talk. And it, like that's where the manifesto comes in. And we will get to the manifesto, listeners. The unhinged rantings of a lunatic usually is what a manifesto uh, has in store for us. And this one is no disappointment. I'll get to the voluntarily, uh, to voluntary sterilization plans that he has in that manifesto to save mother earth from, uh, the, the species of humans that evolved on it. Right. We have to save it from this natural evolutionary process. Um, and I don't want to be flipping about it. I know I've been trying to be more open-minded about it and all that kind of stuff and not view it as the kind of occult-like religious adherence that I think it is, but I'm going to try to treat it as if, okay, let's take this seriously, because he wants us to take it seriously, clearly, and I'm somebody who wants to engage in good faith seriously with works of art, and I think listeners do too, that's why you come to a podcast like Heavy Board, but let's start with the very first thing, so the introductory note, I'm just going to read the first paragraph, Uh, and it goes into, it's three paragraphs long, but you know, whatever. It says a lot of nothing, but here. Turtle Island, the old slash new name for the continent, based on many creation myths of the people who have been living here for millennia and reapplied by some of them to, quote, North America in recent years, as if that doesn't, as if that's not the proper name, right? North America. I don't recognize the name. Okay, I'll stop making fun of it. Also, an idea found worldwide. So it's not just this name for the, uh, uh, the native populations of the Americans of the Americas, but it's also an idea found worldwide of the Earth or cosmos even. So we keep getting broader and broader. Earth, cosmos, sustained by a great turtle or serpent of eternity. And this is, of course, referring to mostly the Native American creation myths, and those vary from tribe to tribe, right? If you don't know anything about Native American culture, and obviously a lot of us know or understand the the horrors that happened when um. Americas, when the Americas were being conquered by uh, Europeans and things like that. We understand that kind of colonialist horrors. But, um, you know, depending on which tribe you ask, like I think some in the kind of north northeastern part of the country had this kind of Turtle Island thing idea as well. I think Stephen King even uses it in some of his stuff because it's kind of a very old creation myth uh, in, in the Native American populations. And uh, I guess he's speaking of... Um, Native Americans, mostly uh, on the West Coast, and I believe they had a similar, and you know, this it varied, you know, there was always a creator, right? They'd go to the Romans, the Greeks, the Christian, everybody has a creator myth, and a lot of Native Americans use Turtle Island. So, okay, I get that, right? So the title, Turtle Island, is uh, Merging the Earth, and my question is, what do we think about this? 
And first I thought, okay, eye roll, right? This is the introductory note. This is the first fucking page. And I'm already kind of going, okay, you're stretching it a little bit. It keeps getting broader and broader in the first paragraph. It's not just the earth. It's the cosmos. It's everything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But then it occurred to me that the tradition of the romantics. So I started thinking, like I said, in the monologue, this kind of tradition of the romantic poets. And I tried to get a better attitude about it, Uh, you know, to engage fairly that Snyder may have seen himself as continuing this kind of romantic tradition through the kind of mediocrity of the beat writers, right? As he gets lumped in there a lot. And listeners, you can go back and listen to, uh, what was it, episode 27, where uh, we talk about Allen Ginsberg's masterpiece, how that collection of poems and how fucking good it is and how fucking good Ginsberg is or was as a poet, um, and how I believe Ginsburg to be the only beat worth remembering in terms of his contributions to the field. I think he contributed so much. He's one of the most important literary figures of the 20th century, and all the others are not, including Gary Snyder here. Uh, but okay, so we move on. I found this a little corny, Turtle Island. I felt a little overly simplistic and a little over-romanticized. I think it's doing more um, in Snyder's head than it is for a reader. And if you look at some of the cover art on this as well, listeners, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of different kind of Native American symbols, uh, ancient kind of uh, Buddhist kind of symbols from kind of the more Eastern philosophies. Again, the Eastern philosophies were having a huge comeback in the kind of 60s and 70s, right? There was a huge movement with kind of a Buddhist mentality, um, you know, monks mentality, these kind of ancient wisdom, right? This kind of respect for ancient wisdom that helped uh, Uh, civilizations thrive at certain times in history right and we're kind of so prosperous now we can go back and start looking over these kind of cultural ideas and beliefs that helped uh, something like uh, the eastern part of the world thrive and become empires and conquer all the islands in the pacific and and things like that throughout you know last couple centuries Uh, and before that even so that's the introductory note. It goes on and on and on. And again, just to give you an idea before I move on from the introductory note of where this is headed, uh, the next paragraph is a name, colon, that we may see ourselves more accurately on this continent of watersheds and life communities, plant zones, uh, physiographic provinces, culture areas, following natural boundaries. The quote, USA, in air quotes, as if that's not real, right? And its states and counties are arbitrary and inaccurate imposition, inaccurate impositions on what is really here, on what is really here. And I'm just like, okay, all right, right. These imaginary lines don't exist. Why? Well, because Snyder says so. Uh, And that's it. Uh, The last paragraph, the poems speak of place and the energy pathways, whatever that is, that sustain life. Each living being is a swirl in the flow, a formal turbulence, a, quote, song. The land, the planet itself, is also a living being, at another pace. And then he goes into Anglos, black people, Chicanos, and others beached up on these shores, all share such views as the deepest levels of their old cultural traditions, African, Asian, or European. Hark again to those roots to see our ancient solidarity, and then to the work of being together on Turtle Island. 
So that's the introductory note. And again, if you hear what I'm saying, especially in that last paragraph, it's clearly tapping into kind of that, yeah, like the revolutionary kind of movement from the 1960s. So this was a huge moment of change where we were understanding, right, we have more in common. There's a kind of an ancient solidarity he's referring to. And, you know, this kind of, you know, common, common humanity, right? Like this is the thing that was being preached at the time. And you'll see on like the photograph and, and stuff like that, like this author photo. He's uh, rocking ponytails and leather vests and, and you know, that kind of hippie uh, uh, fashion and, and ideas. And uh, there's actually a huge moment for cults and stuff like that at that time. If anybody's interested, it's actually very fascinating what the hippie movements led to a lot of cultures. Um, so the first poem on page three, uh, Anasazi, it's called, uh, I don't know if I want to read this to you guys, uh, but it's just made me think this is going to be rough for me. This is not my style, really. Not really my wheelhouse in terms of what I'm looking for, searching out for uh, various forms of art and writing. Just not for me. Uh, but it, it was kind of nice to see at least some attention to line breaks and things like that. I guess I'm just so starved for it from contemporary poetry where nobody seems to understand what a line break even is or what the purpose of it is kind of structurally in a, a reading of a poem. Um, but, you know, take it up with Poetry Foundation. And then on page four, the second poem, The Way West, comma, Underground, didn't fare much better for me in terms of me kind of buying into this whole little, what I would call... I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think it's not a fraud, but I think it's it's religious like adherence. You know, like it's this kind of as an atheist, I find it very hard to believe um, in anything that I can't put my finger on or or feel personally. Uh, and you know, that's open to interpretation. Don't take my word for it. But this is where we get the first kind of images, these kind of like weird cave painting style images mixed with kind of like Buddhist or like ancient Eastern philosophy um, symbols. And they're kind of spattered at the end of poems, in the middle of poems, um, all over the book, uh, which is why I called this kind of a hodgepodge in the monologue. I know some would take issue with that, but it really is. There's not one consistent thing about this, except for the fact that he kind of took this kind of buffet of ancient philosophies and pulled what he wanted from each one and kind of welded it together into his own, you know? That's essentially what they're doing. But let's get to something I actually like, something that I want to talk positively about. And that's on page seven, The Dead by the Side of the Road. And let me read this poem to you. Because this is the first one that I kind of made me feel something, but I also want to use it as an example of what I was talking about in the monologue. So, the dead by the side of the road. How did a great red-tailed hawk come to lie, all stiff and dry, on the shoulder of Interstate 5? Her wings for dance fans. Zack skinned a skunk with a crushed head. Washed the pelt in gas. It hangs, tanned in his tent. Fawn stew on Halloween. Hit by a, hit by a truck on Highway 49. Offer cornmeal by the mouth, skin it out. Log trucks run on fossil fuel. I never saw a ringtail till I found one in the road. Case skinned it with the toenails. Foot pads, nose, and whiskers on. It soaks in salt and water, sulfuric acid pickle. She will be a pouch for magic tools. The doe was apparently shot, lengthwise, and through the side. Shoulder and out the flank, belly full of blood. Can save the other shoulder, maybe. 
if she didn't lie too long, pray to their spirits, ask them to bless us, our ancient sisters' trails. The roads were laid across and kill them. Night shining eyes, the dead by the side of the road. This is one that I think actually made me feel something. And this is one that I want to praise a little bit, but it still relies on something outside the poem in parts, in parts. And I want to point to those parts. So I get this kind of, right, we get the overall theme, this kind of outrage at animals being killed, right? And this kind of, you know, a common thing for a poem. We don't like to see innocent things suffering needlessly. Most human beings have an issue with that. I mean, very few people take glee in that besides, you know, crazy people. But this is the main subject, right? And the point of emphasis in the poem is the same thing with these animals. But there is little to tell us or express the emotion. And there, I guess... All right, so the things like log trucks run on fossil fuels. This is just kind of thrown in there, and it's on its it's by itself. It it doesn't quite fit apart from the fact that it's talking about roadkill. But like log trucks run on fossil fuel, it doesn't actually um, do anything as we move through here, right? Like it's just kind of like a little protest line put in there that almost I would say. Uh, distracts because of the way it's placed on its love by a line by itself it's bringing extra attention to this line that doesn't quite fit but I think it's also kind of the last stanza that does the most work on this front where he's trying to get this across right so one the title is the last line it's a little bit lazy to me but okay whatever can save the other shoulder maybe if she didn't lie too long pray to their spirits ask them to bless us our ancient sisters trails and roads were laid and roads were laid across and killed them night shining eyes the dead of the side by the dead by the side of the road so i think this is the last stanza is doing the most work for this entire thing because it's showing us this roadkill, but then it's actually showing us, oh, like these random guy, Zach, who we don't know, right? We don't know who that is unless you know biography, which again is relying on something outside of the poem. Log trucks run on fossil fuel. Now there's no mention of kind of fracking, oil drilling, anything like that before the poem, but he's just throwing that in there because again, he's relying on something outside the poem to give this poem a little bit more meaning. And he does this with every poem in the book. And uh, that's why it doesn't quite fit, or it feels like it's kind of reaching for something that isn't quite there. Whereas this kind of small, this is small enough, I would say. And I like this poem, but this is small enough. This kind of roadkill idea is small enough to really expand in the theme that I think Snyder wants to do with kind of, you know, it's wrong that this is happening, these poor animals getting hit by cars and left for dead on the side of the road, right? But again, it's trying to do too much. It's trying to broaden it too much. He's having these kind of broad references to things that just you know hurts it for me but of course you know let me know what you think let me know what your favorite poem in this is listeners all right let's move to page 12 page 12 we have the bath and this is probably his most famous poem the most canonized poem and it's actually quite long so i don't think i'll read all of this but if you typed in gary snyder's name to google this would probably be one of the first ones that popped up on a website like poetry foundation or you know uh, the academy of american poets and things uh, so this is his most famous and probably his most recognized poem but honestly uh, and this is me personally talking. I'm not trying to be objective here or anything like that. I just, I've never been a big fan of the poem. I remember being forced to kind of read his work, like like book poems like The Bath and stuff in grad school, and just not agreeing with anything the teachers were telling me. Like, just kind of being, ugh, all right. I just find everything he's written so bland. And again, maybe that problem is me, listeners. And I kept asking myself this. 
But a poem like The Bath strikes me as more uh, a yoga, kind of like more as like a, a yoga studio guru than a poet. Uh, easy observations, obvious observations, um, the earth first trend from the time. Um, and there's also, I think what people really like about it, and I think what he masterfully does in this is there's kind of a, a sexuality about it, kind of a sterile uh, sexualizing and I think he's trying to do what like the hippies would do with kind of what they call family beds and like things like that where the children and the parents would all sleep together in these large beds um, but I think it, it's kind of too sterile he's trying to be almost too sterile with it but of course it's not without the beauty that he's clearly aiming for so I don't want to be like oh this doesn't capture anything I think it does capture something I think it captures something better than most like I said in the monologue um, this one is very specific literally the bath is the title so it's about bathing right that's it and it's about bathing in this kind of weird you know he was kind of you know mountain man live off the grid type hippie uh and clearly you know bathing his wife and him and uh, their child all bathing together not that uncommon uh maybe it was back then i don't know but uh i think it does capture a beauty in there that i think he actually that he was trying to go for and notice how this one is much longer than all the other poems in this collection. Not all of them, but it's one of the longest poems in this collection. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason that this is one of the most famous. It's because it actually is saying the most specific thing. But then, as I mentioned in the monologue, it is also kind of just like a portrait of like a look at me self-portrait, right? Like where I get that kind of Steven Seagal thing like people don't remember like Steven Seagal when he got really into kind of like eastern philosophies and he would like sit there like he was some like the most enlightened being in the world with like his hands folded like a fucking monk and like giving these weird interviews about how he's found enlightenment and uh, all that stuff it strikes me a lot of that but this one has its merits as I want to say the bath and on page 19 we have with the control burn the um the poem I mentioned in the monologue where it kind of struck me as almost that like return to nature meme, right? Like the return meme that people make online. And as I said before, you know, maybe my problem with that is that I don't believe it. I kind of can't believe that, that we can go back. Um, including the last line of this poem where it just ends before period. So let me read it real quick. What the Indians here used to do was to burn out the brush every year in the woods up the gorges keeping the oak and the pine stands tall and clear with grasses and kit kit dizzy under them never enough fuel there not a fire could crown now manzanita a fine bush in its right crowds up under the new trees mixed up with logging slash and a fire can wipe all and a fire can wipe out all fire is an old story I would like, with a sense of help or with a sense of helpful order, with respect for laws of nature, to help my land with a burn, a hot, clean burn. Manzanita seeds will only open after a fire passes over or once passed through a bear, and then it would be more like when it belonged to the Indians before. And this is that kind of hippie shit that I was talking about, where it's like, I, I, my problem is I don't believe it, right? Like I. I, not that I don't believe that the Native Americans were doing controlled burns for their lands, uh, but that we can return, that it can be more like before if we just prop, we copy this kind of ancient cultural practice. Um, it's hippie shit, right? I could never actually believe that. Uh, maybe some of you could, but, you know, 
that's my issue with it. And then there's this, this is another good example to bring up with the inconsistency in terms of the sentence structure. So in the first sentence, in the first stanza here, there's a period. The next sentence begins with a lowercase, um, no capitalization, even though the first sentence in the poem started with a capitalization. And then we have inconsistencies throughout. So then the, that second sentence starts with an... Um, lowercase letter and then the third sentence starts with a capitalized letter uh, then another capitalized letter then another capitalized letter and then no caps on another sentence and you know it just it doesn't quite make sense to me I don't understand what this is there's no pattern to it there's no rhyme or reason from what I can tell which is why I call this in the monologue a little bit of what I would call laziness a kind of a lack of attention to detail or I don't want to go this far, but it could be, you know, kind of a lack of understanding in certain regards. Um, in the 20th century, there were a lot of people that just thought they could do poetry because, you know, any type of philosophical musings smashed onto a page in these little boxes could be called a poem. And, you know, I don't think that I don't believe that here on Heavy Board. But, you know, you all let me know what you think. And at the end of this first section, I was really I was bored. And I was really trying not to roll my eyes at how kind of what I would consider it to be this kind of naive and childishness um, of this kind of 70s hippie child shit. How, you know, kind of how serious this kind of vague Noah's Ark style chastising of all humanity. And it's just not for me, really, I guess. So I don't want to go too far into like psychoanalytical stuff. I don't want to go too far into biography, as you all have heard me say on previous episodes. I just want to tell you what I felt and what I think after reading a book the way I think it was intended to be read. All right, so let's get into this. Let's go a little further into the next section of the poetry here. Sorry, let me get a fresh jewel pod so that I'm not jonesing by the end of this for a little nicotine. Let's flick those air bubbles out. The next section in this book is called Magpie Song. Uh, and magpie is, of course, uh, a type of bird, and it comes into a lot of kind of uh, poetry throughout the centuries here. You can find references to magpies, you know, a thousand years ago, re referenced in kind of ancient Chinese poetry or something like that, right? Let me just say, this is where my, my kind of... When I say that I view this as kind of lazy it's mainly about this section and then beyond where this is where i think it gets very lazy and it starts to rely on that outside thing that environmentalism the kind of ideology outside of the book uh to give a lot of these poems meaning so facts on page 31 uh the real work on page 32 uh pine tree tops on page 33 these are the first three poems in this section and it's just this is where it got lazy and I think this is where I really started to turn on the book itself. And my main complaint is that these three poems, the three I just mentioned, Facts, The Real Work, and Pine Tree Tops, they're pieces of poems. They're not complete. So it's half the work, which is why I call this lazy, right? This is just the sentiment. So these poems are all just little portraits of things that happen, um, little scenes throughout his kind of, you know, hunter-gatherer lifestyle that he wants you to know about. And it just relies on the sentiment, Snyder's own nobility, giving it the meaning. And they're not quite scoldy or snarky in terms of like what we would consider in time the internet kind of culture today, but they are a little bit, listeners, if you read through this, right? And again, these poems are very, they're laments. They're kind of sad. They're laments for a world 
But what confuses me about them and what I think makes them not as honest is that I think they're laments for a world that Snyder never knew. When he talks about how it would be better if it was like before when um, Native Americans were the only people in, in all of the Americas and they were, you know, living the land and having their little tribal wars and whatever it is. Uh, he wasn't alive for any of that. Right, he's not that old. I think he's in his nineties, still alive today. So, uh, but he's up there. I think he's like ninety-two, ninety-three now. And I just couldn't help but see through this, this thing that, like, dude, you're imagining a world that you never lived in, and then you're telling me it's sad that we're not living in this imagined. I just, you know, I don't believe it. I kind of see through it, and I find it a little disappointing that this is considered Pulitzer Prize worthy. But again, you know, that's not up to me. I'm not on these committees. I'm not in these meetings, and I certainly wasn't in these meetings in 1975. So. You know, all I can do is just give you my honest take on it. I can't, you know, do anything else about it. And, it, you know, okay, people want to say, well, look at you criticizing this Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, take it or leave it, dude. There's plenty of other people out there that are praising the shit out of this Pulitzer Prize winning book. So, you know, go do that. Uh, and this is where I started to notice the kind of confessional aspect to a lot of his work. And that was very popular in the kind of 1960s. And this is post-Plath, you know, you know post-Lowell, writing life studies and uh, all that. And I've often said things like the confessional movement have made a huge mark on literature to the point where we're not even... We can't even really get past it Uh we're kind of stuck on it for the last 60 years where it's kind of biography where the poet's life is considered just as important as the poet's body of work. And I just want to point out to listeners that are curious or want to look into this, there's very little evidence that that's the way we should be reading art. It was just kind of a sentiment, an idea that kind of took off with the confessional movement in the 1960s. And I believe this led to kind of our current obsession with autofiction today. It's this kind of look at me attitude. And the, the early confessional poets like Plath, like Lowell, uh, Berryman, Snodgrass, these poets, uh, they, they understood that it had to be more than just kind of a confessional aspect. So they had to put all this kind of artwork around it, right? And still use the framework of the, of the structure of the art of poetry and all that kind of thing. Stanzas, rhyme, whatever it is, meter, just like the basic structures. And I think the confessional, especially in fiction, with this kind of auto-fiction that the people don't understand is just kind of a, a boring misusing of the of the confessional movement it, I think it shows such a lack of idea it's such a lack of creativity um we need stories we don't need your story right like like most people's lives are boring as shit so autofiction has to have some embellishments some fictionalization to it but then when you're using yourself as the framework so we've talked about this a little bit on the ben learner episode things like that when you're using yourself like your own self as a character it just you know it's an eye roll for me it's an eye roll for me every time you know sorry that's just how I feel about it. And, you know, I mentioned this in the monologue, but like the main problem with all these kind of like hodgepodge of, of philosophies that's kind of collaged together in this book, it makes it so that there's so many kind of hodgepodge thrown together things that there's no coherent, clear vision or um, theme beyond, again, um, 
uh, Snyder's personal kind of um, convictions or religious-like adherence to this kind of environmentalist ideology. And that's really why it doesn't work. It's because it's kind of too jumbled. There's not a cut-through that cuts all these things together, even though I'm sure many would argue with me about that, and even Snyder would argue about that, but I don't see it on the page as somebody reading this trying to be as objective as possible. But on pages 44 and 45, we have the poem It Pleases and the poem Hemp. Of course there's a poem called Hemp in this fucking hippie book, but all right. These two poems on page 44 and 45 was where I started to realize how kind of boring and shallow a lot of these poems are and how they're just kind of like descriptions of um, almost these kind of boring normal events that Snyder wants us to see romanticized into something more but it always again this is why I brought up the no through line because there's so little kind of clarity to the overall theme or vision here it's much too broad as I said in the monologue that all we get is this kind of plain vanilla vague um you know so that means that it fails to make the reader really feel what I think he was going for and that's the main reason I consider this book to be um a failure not working so straight creek uh great burn uh this is a poem it's a little bit long I'm not going to read the whole thing but uh let me read the last couple stanzas. And I just think that the final stanza, my main complaint with this one is that the final stanza, I feel, is a cop-out. Um, with the inconsistent capitalization and the sentence structure, it just it, it's, it, it all strikes me as more of an oversight than a technique, right? So even if he was claiming that this was some technique he was using to subvert our expectations, it doesn't work. And it doesn't actually develop its own kind of logic it's just random and that therefore leading me to think it's chaotic and or an oversight or like I keep saying a laziness uh, so let's read these last couple stanzas here uh, a whoosh of birds swoops up and round tilts back almost always flying all apart and yet hangs on together never a leader all of one swift empty dancing mind they arc and loop and then their flight is done they settle down. End of poem. End of poem. Oh my god. That was the big thing that just kind of blew my lid off where I was like, oof, I do not like this book. Do not like that little sentence there, that little cop-out thing. Ugh. End of poem. And why do we think that's there, listeners? Why would somebody put end of poem in there? It reminds me of almost internet culture. It's like, end of tweet, right? That is all end of poem it's just it's bullshit i don't like it i'm sure there's others i'm sure there are people out there that have differing opinions on it but you know that's that's my take on it and this is the final poem i want to touch on in this collection with the actual poem called the magpie song which is what this section was named if listeners remember uh i'll read you this poem because it's a little bit shorter uh, and then I'll tell you what I think about it, because I think it's a good example of where I think Snyder is going halfway and not all the way. So here's Magpie's song. 6 a.m. Sat down on excavation gravel by Juniper and desert, and desert SP tracks. Interstate 80, not far off. Between trucks, coyotes, maybe three, howling and yapping from a rise. Magpie on a bough tipped his head and said, quote, here in the mind, brother, turquoise and blue, 
I wouldn't fool you, smell the breeze. It came through all the trees, no need to fear what's ahead. Snow up on the hills west, will be there every year, be at rest. A feather on the ground, the wind sound. Here in the mind, brother, turquoise blue. And that's it, that's it. And what I want to touch on in this is that it's almost there. Besides the rhymes being kind of easy and simple, almost nursery rhyme rhymes, right? There's nothing very special about them. Uh, I think there's actually a good image in here, which is like the mind is turquoise blue. I think that's a very great and powerful image here. Uh, but the problem is that we, well, we don't get enough to show us what that is. What is the mind is turquoise blue, right? And it's like coming from a bird singing on a bow. It's like, oh, the mind is turquoise blue. Here in the mind, brother, turquoise blue. Here in the mind, brother, turquoise blue. I wouldn't fool you. Smell the breeze, right? And again, this is just the description. So the first stanza is literally just a description of the speaker sitting down on a fucking pile of gravel listening to the morning sounds. And then you hear this little bird, and then we kind of go into this little song that the bird's singing. And of course, the bird isn't actually saying these words, but, you know, which is part of the art, artistry of poetry. But here we just get the mind, here in the mind, brother, turquoise blue. What does that mean? Does anybody know what it means? Do you think we get an idea of what that means in the poem? I don't think so. And this is where I thought that it was so vague. And what's giving this poem meaning is this kind of obsession with nature, right? This kind of environmentalist ideology is the only reason anybody would look at a poem like this and say, oh, it's so powerful. It's so good. It's not. And um, this is really where I it kind of solidified what I was feeling already, where I was like, mm, you know, this Snyder isn't for me. He's not for me. I consider this kind of... Um, kind of hackish in my opinion kind of hackish cringe i kept saying oh you know i kept cringing turning these pages just oh my god cringe 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 and it just made me i don't like this book i just i was like okay i'm not a this book isn't for me i don't like this book but okay you know I, I really couldn't get much more out of it than that. And I know maybe that disappoints a lot of people or whatever, you know, like I said, send me an email. I'd love to have a little, um, to revisit some of this. Uh, if, if listeners wanted to send in an email with their thoughts on Snyder's poetry or maybe his place in the canon, you know, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Um, uh, maybe my own ideologies are blinding me. Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, but you know, it could be. Because I do ask myself that, and I try to figure out if, uh, if it is a personal issue, right? But that's when I got to the manifesto. Okay, let's get to the manifesto here. There's nothing else to bring up in this. Nothing else to bring up in this with the kind of lineation and things. He's, he does this kind of trendy thing where, where lines are indented that um, don't make a whole lot of sense. Some places it makes a lot of sense, some places it doesn't. Um, it was kind of a trend at the time, so I, I think that's why it was there. It's kind of arbitrary, as I said in the monologue in most places in the book. But of course, here we are. All right, let's get to the manifesto. Let us get to the manifesto. As I said in the monologue, right? Who writes manifestos? Extremists write manifestos. Okay, that's who writes manifestos. And guess what? Manifestos are usually fucking rants, right? Unthought out rants. I'm going to give you an overview of some of this. The, the, the manifesto is called Four Changes. Okay, so in the opening section of this, it says, Four Changes was written in the summer of 69 in response to an evident need for a few practical and visionary suggestions. 
blah, 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 blah. It was printed and distributed widely, free, through the help of Alan Watts and Robert Shapiro. Uh, again, if people don't know who Alan Watts is, he's kind of obsessed with Eastern philosophy, um, was a figure in the 70s and 60s. Several other free editions circulated, including one beautifully printed version by Noel Young of Santa Barbara. Far from perfect, and in some parts already outdated, it may still be useful. And then it has a little thing. Sections and brackets are recent commentary. So there are like sections and brackets where I guess maybe some criticisms were addressed after the first initial publication. And it starts off kind of, you know, innocent enough where it says one population, the condition, uh, position, man is but a part of the fabric of life, dependent on the whole fabric for this, for his very existence. Again, it's easy enough. Everybody agrees with that. As the most highly developed tool-using animal, he must recognize that the unknown evolutionary destinies of other life forms are to be respected and act as gentle steward of the Earth's community of being. Situation, there are now too many human beings and the problem is growing rapidly worse. Uh, it is potentially disastrous, not only for the human race, but for most other life forms. Potentially disastrous. Potentially disastrous. So he doesn't know, right? These are just assumptions. That's the first big, again, ex extremists write manifestos. And then they have the goal. The goal would be half the present world population or less. And this was in 1969. Half the world population is going to save us, right? Again, very religious-like. He's very overzealous. Uh, <laughs> okay, and this is the action they suggest in the manifesto. First, a massive effort to convince the governments and leaders of the world that the problem is severe and that all talk about raising food production, well-intentioned as it is, simply puts off the only real solution. Reduce population. Demand immediate participation by all countries in programs to legalize abortion, encourage vasectomy and sterilization provided by free clinics, free insertion of intrauterine loops, try to correct traditional cultural attitudes that tend to force women into childbearing, remove income tax deductions for more than two children above a specific in, above a speci above a specified income level, and scale it so that lower income families are forced to be careful too, <laughs> or pay families to limit their number. Right. And again, it's like, uh, and, and there's in the brackets after this, uh, it says in this kind of added commentary, the governments, right, are the wrong agents to address. Their most likely use of a problem or crisis is to seize it as another excuse for extending their own powers. Abortion and should, should be legal and voluntary, but questions about vasectomy side effects still come up. Great care should be taken that no one is ever tricked or forced into sterilization. Why are we sterilizing people again? Oh, right, to save the world. Yeah, the whole population issue is fraught with contradictions. But the fact stands that by standards of planetary biological welfare, there are already too many human beings. What those standards are, uh, of course, are not mentioned in this manifesto. He just knows, right? He just knows. Uh, he knows through his ancient wisdom and his leather vests and bead necklaces. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to take this that seriously. I mean, again, the, the, it's a manifesto. Is, it's laughably naive. It's an extremist vision for humanity, uh, one that concludes humans must be, you know, that humans are a locus on the planet, right? Again, this is Noah's Ark story, uh, that they must be, uh, you know, civilization is not an evolutionary step in the process, but a cancer 
uh, that's you know inherently evil and comes from humans and all that. You know, it's a total fantasy, and I just have it hard. I find it very hard to believe that a lot of smart people can look at the world and then just have this kind of religious Noah's Ark idea that they just know that civilization and you know the problems that civilization creates is not a natural evolutionary step in the process, but actually a cancer, right, a disease. Uh, I don't know how you can objectively look at that and say it, but uh, of course people like Snyder here believe it and offer uh, ideas for it. And again, some of them are well-meaning. Some of them are things that I think most people agree with. Sorry, there's a few mentions uh, of things that I wanted to laugh at here. So he has this section where our own heads, right? How do we deal with our own heads? Because again, all of these revolutionary kind of manifestos require everyone in the world to change basic human psychology. That's the solution. Oh, if we had only just thought of it. Okay. But uh, it is hard to even begin to gauge how much a complication of possessions, the notions of my and mine, stand between us and a true, clear, liberated way of seeing the world. Hmm. Right. Again, and this is this idea that he's kind of pulling from what I would call um, um, ancient cultures, Native American cultures, really the concept of ownership um, that we consider now is can, was you know unheard of, but you know people still own things, um, little tools and you know decorations and clothing and you know rights to food that they killed, etc. But all right, that's beside the point. To live lightly on the earth, to be aware and alive. To be free of egotism. Yeah, this is totally free of egotism, by the way. To be in contact with plants and animals. And I started thinking to myself, like, be in contact with plants and animals. By this, he means oneness, right? He means oneness with the living. Everything living. But I'm not sure how one is in contact with plants and animals. And of course, it's not specified in this manifesto because it's just a fantasy but all right. <clears throat> and then we have a few other things that I thought was really funny. <laughs> all right. Um, one of the things that live harmoniously and dynamically okay, with nature, blah, blah, blah. One of the things they suggested is a cultural and individual pluralism unified by a type of world tribal council. <laughs> uh, division by natural and cultural boundaries rather than arbitrary political boundaries and i get what he means here right like this is again kind of the earth first thing where it's like oh you know uh country borders are made up they're fabrications they're just they're just little imaginary lines and there's some truth to that right there's some truth to the fact that they are arbitrary but to fix that we need a unified by a type of world tribal council and i'm assuming this is unelected right we don't elect this world tribal council we just you know listen to them again this is total fantasy this whenever you since someone's ready to manifesto just understand that it is a total fantasy and that person is probably unhinged and there's probably maybe one or two good ideas that maybe started the manifesto right uh, but then it quickly devolves into this kind of new world order bullshit, right? And by <laughs> a world tribal council, uh, it, it's unbelievable. And this is always proposed as a solution for these huge, too broad problems that can't be addressed on any individual level. We can't address them on any individual level. So again, you have to have this fantasy that there's going to be some tribal council that's been enlightened through, you know, um, philosophical musings like Snyder has or claims to have been. And then we're going to fix all the problems of the world. We're going to live in harmony with nature and peace, right? 
and again, it's snake oil. Like they're selling you bullshit. Like if somebody's trying to sell you this, it's bullshit. And I just, I thought it took away from the book to have this type of manifesto in the back of it. I think it's a total childish, um, not serious way of viewing the world. And it relies on a kind of perpetual state of revolution, which of course is unsustainable. Um, it just isn't enough. It isn't enough. And of course, people can disagree with me on that. People can say, oh, 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 you know, Snyder, he's a genius. Sure, you can think that. I don't think that, all right? I think he's a blowhard, quite honestly. And I don't think he even believes that if you pressed him, I think he would admit that most of what he wrote in this manifesto can't ever happen. It's a dream world. It's a fantasy. But, okay, you know, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go too hard on it. I don't want to be too much of a stick in the mud about it so i'll leave it at that reminder to listeners i'm still looking for those workshop horror stories if you have uh, thoughts on a workshop experience in a workshop you want to share with me send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com uh, for those that don't know we also have a subscription plan subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard to receive full access to this podcast and if you don't want to do that can't afford it there are other ways to support us you can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can f- subscribe to our YouTube channels, at Heavy Board and at Heavy Board Clips. Give those a like, a share, a subscribe. That helps us out, helps us grow. We really, uh, really appreciate it. And of course, all the books that we covered are linked in the description, as well as this one. And we'll see you next time. This has been Heavy Board. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.